0: Well, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Isaiah, chapter 65. In a moment, we'll start reading in verse 17. It's not our text for this morning. Our text for this morning is the first 12 chapters or select passages from the first 12 chapters, but we'll start here. Perception is reality. Sometimes you'll hear that said. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it is not true when it comes to to your health, at least all the time. I have an uncle, he's the youngest of his siblings, recently came home from the trip. Cardiac arrest, he's okay. No one saw that coming with the way that he lives, eats, exercises, and all of that. And he scared his siblings to death, each of whom are older than he is. Your perception of your health is not always the reality of your health. Well, whatever our view of sin, its offense, its pervasiveness, its consequence, it is not dark enough. And whatever our view of salvation, its freeness, its glory, and its joy, it is not bright or radiant enough. And that's because whatever our view of God, in his holiness, his faithfulness, and his mercy, it is not biblical enough. But that's why we have the Bible, and that's why we have the book of Isaiah, and that's where we're at in the next five weeks. This is the first in a five-week series through the book of Isaiah. Some have called it the Gospel of Isaiah. It's one of the most quoted books in the Old Testament, and it is the prophet quoted more than all of the other prophets combined by New Testament authors to explain the work in person of Jesus. The series is titled A Vision of Two Cities. The book falls into five parts and will give a sermon to each part. It begins with a city and it ends with a city. And these are very different cities, but by the same name. Isaiah sees a vision of two ways to live, two places to bank our trust, two ways of salvation, if you will, and two futures. The Bible, in a nutshell, one way of salvation that does not save, one way of salvation that absolutely saves. So with your Bibles open to Isaiah 65, let's begin reading where Isaiah ends. Verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking. I will hear the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the dust, shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Well, what a beautiful city this is. The Garden of Eden 2.0, replanted and expanded. Isaiah has grabbed onto language and categories in his own experience to portray and paint a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Jerusalem, in other words, the place where God is with his people and all is right. No calamity, nothing sad, nothing bad, not even a memory of those things. And the serpent's head, it's in the dust. Remember Genesis 3, a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Here in this place, in this city, serpent's head's in the dust. He doesn't move. He doesn't breathe. God and his people rejoicing in one another, happy together forever. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter one. We get a very different city at the beginning of this book. How does the Jerusalem of chapter one become the Jerusalem of the end of the book given the unapproachable holiness of God, which we will see in our sermon today? And how can we find ourselves in that new city? We should want to know the answer to that question. It is the, ans- it is the question the Bible answers, And that the book of Isaiah will answer for us in its own unique way. Three points today for three sections. A a confrontation, an encounter, and a story. A confrontation now. Chapters 1 through 5. Won't read the whole thing. Don't worry. We'll just read bookends of it. Before I read, I have to warn you. If you've ever gone to the hospital to visit a close family member, uh, but you've been stopped and warned to prepare yourself for what you're about to see. Because it will be hard to see. You haven't seen them like this. It shouldn't be this way. Well, make sure you're ready. God's people are in rough shape. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Well, whose kids are these? These are God's kids. His children, he says. He reared them and brought them up. Oh, he made them with a promise to Abraham to make a nation from his children. He redeemed them from slavery through Moses. He led them. He fed them. He gave them his word. He gave them his love. He gave them a land. Miraculously, all of it before their very eyes. All of this so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God might fill the earth going out from his people, a light to the nations. Yet they forsake him, they forget him. Even a donkey knows where it belongs, it knows where its owner is and it goes to its owner. God's children, you'd you'd never know who they belong to. You can't tell, they pay him no acknowledgement. The poetry is here is quite effective. Poetry is used uh, throughout Isaiah as a way of portraying things. Not only the facts of those things, but also the reality. And what we see here is disgusting. It's disgusting. The whole head is sick. Bruises from head to toe. There are images on TV and on the internet that they just never show. You hear about a murder? Do you ever see a picture of the person slain in their blood mutilated no it would turn your stomach it's it's so defacing of God's image in humanity that we all just know not to look on it this is hard to look at it's like a child so bruised and with raw wounds from their own rebellion and the things they have insisted on bringing on themselves that there is no room even for a spanking. How about another image? It's that of a military fortress. Let's see if you can find it. Starting in verse 7. The country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overgrown by overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. As a consequence of forsaking God and in keeping with the covenant that he established with them through Moses, this is exactly what he promised would happen if they forsake him and do not trust him. He is not there to protect them, in fact, he sends armies on them. They can read their book and Isaiah is here to tell them exactly what is going on is exactly what they have been said, told would happen. A lodge in a cucumber field is not a very fortified military uh, fortress. I hate cucumbers. And I'm sure that a lodge in a cucumber field is only there to protect you from the sun. It's not there to protect you from an army. It's cucumbers. And that's what they are. That's what they're reduced to. Strength can be compared to this. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wow, if it couldn't even get worse. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Not in some ways you're like, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. He gives them a new name. The rulers and the people, he calls them. This seems a little harsh, considering that the next verses speak about their careful and diligent observance of God's specific laws with respect to religious ritual. Should we give them credit? Maybe not. Verse 11, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Even though God commanded them. So what's worse? a spouse who is unfaithful, who says, I have been unfaithful in my marriage and I have cheated. Or a spouse who has been unfaithful as an adulterer and says, I've been faithful, I pay the bills, I eat at this table every night. Oh gosh, the self-deception is insane. So here is Israel Performing all of their religious duties and considering themselves obedient, doing whatever they want in their heart. Doing whatever they want in their heart. No surprise, if there's nothing worse than a hypocrite to us, how much more to God? And Isaiah is doing here what the prophets do. The prophets are sort of like God's lawyers, they're mediators of the word. They're bringing to bear the word of God onto the people of God in their circumstances. In these circumstances, they need to hear God's interpretation of their circumstances. And that their whole head is sick, even if they, they cannot tell. Different prophets will uh, have different tricks in the bag. So Ezekiel, will, he'll eat a scroll to make a point. You can look these up. He's going to lay on his side for 390 days. Hosea, he marries a prostitute and names are unloved to make a point. Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah, he built a little play city, model city of Jerusalem. And then he destroys it to make a point. Isaiah's not as creative, although he will walk around naked in verse 20, chapter 20, um, which I guess isn't that creative. But he does play the guitar. He does play the guitar. Turn with me to chapter 5. Good news, right? We're already five chapters deep in a 12-chapter sermon. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is actually verse 1 of a love song. You guys want to hear a song? Everyone gather in for a song. It's a song It's a song about a vineyard. I will play my guitar for you. I'm embellishing. I don't know if you had a guitar, but you singing a song. I don't know how it went, but I've got the liner notes right here, and so do you. Let me sing for my beloved for my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Love song over. He takes the guitar and he smashes it on the ground. Verse 3, And now, O habitants of Jerusalem, men, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, the Lord says. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And what's God gonna do about it? He's gonna remove its hedge, break down its wall, leave it to weeds, and he's gonna stop the rain. He is done with the vineyard. This is not a matter of underachievement in which you might say God was being a little harsh. Wild grapes are actually worse than no grapes. They're like a spit in the face. They're stinky grapes. It could be translated rancid. It's like a husband who comes home to his wife with flowers dipped in the sewage. I mean, how much do you have to hate a person to deliver them flowers dipped in sewage? How much do they have to hate and forsake and rebel against the Lord to deliver him wild, rancid, stinky grapes? And so we see, starting in verse 8, I won't reference verses from here out, but we see a series of six woes which correspond to six if you will clusters of fruit if you've got your page you can look down and follow me Israel is to love the Lord their God with their heart soul strength and mind how are they doing to be a true model of humanity this is God's humanity project reborn And Abraham's children they're to be holy as God is holy how are they doing Jerusalem the center of God's work in the world Jerusalem, God's people, a light to the nations, holy as he is holy. What do these clusters smell of? Six clusters. Six distinct smells. Cluster one, materialism. They rig properties to edge out the poor in order to put them together and make super houses. Square footage is important to them. Lots of space to move around. Cluster two, hedonism. They get, out, they get up early in order to drink and play music all day long until night with no regard for the deeds and works and word of God. Cluster three, cynicism. They pull, they pull sin as eagerly as a horse does a cart and say to God, oh, let the Holy One counsel us, please come, as if to mock him. We will do what we want. Oh, but hurry if you, you have something to say. Cluster four, relativism. They call evil good and good evil, flipping the universe on its head to feel like they are standing right side up when they are not. Cluster five, humanism. They're wise in their own eyes. They can solve their own problems. The buck stops with them. Their intellect is enough. And cluster six, opportunism. They acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right for a buck. These people do not recognize God's rule. They have other kings, square footage, a dollar, human wisdom. Woe to you, Isaiah says. Woe to you. Six times, woe to you. One for each type of fruit that they bear. Woe to you. And for each cluster of fruit, each type of fruit, there's a corresponding judgment. And note that God's judgment is always true and good and fair and just. Those who get up early to drink until late, the drunkards focused on sensuality and their own pleasures, they'll go thirsty. Those who edge out the poor to expand their properties, big houses, homes will be confiscated. Those who insist and call on God mockingly to come and speak, hurry, God, come speak to us. We want to hear, God, hurry, fast like a fire Through straw, he'll burn them up, he says. Corresponding judgments. Consider what that logic should mean for you and me apart from grace. Is not the disease in Israel the disease common to the sons and daughters of Adam of which we are all apart? More on that in a few. For now, look at the vineyard. What are you supposed to do with this kind of rancid fruit? Fruit that has no need for its gardener and actually uh, delivers up a bad crop on purpose. Well, If it's you or me, we'd probably throw the fruit away and we might uh, consider what we would do better next time. My grandmother gave me a philodendron. She learned that we had no plants in our home. Her backyard was lined with flowers and she was a a very rich gardener, Um, a good gardener. So she gave me a philodendron uh, and promised that I couldn't kill the philodendron. I killed the philodendron. Uh, She was surprised, a little confused. There must've been something wrong with the plant. She gave me another philodendron. I killed that one too. I never told her. We moved to Albuquerque. <laughs> I bought my parents a cactus when they come to visit us. Like you can send a cactus back on the plane. are you going to kept the cactus? Um, this little thing, we named him Richard, the family cactus. <laughs> one year on a cactus. You'd think they'd last longer. I fed him. I didn't feed him like you're not supposed to. Put him by the light. Forgot about him. Tried to repot him. And uh, Richard's long gone. So the problem in my case, the problem in my case is the gardener. The gardener is the problem. I don't know what I'm doing. Even if I did, there'd be something better I could do. Well, for God, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, what more can he do? What more can he do? The problem is in the fruit. The problem is in the heart of humanity. The problem is in our, uh, that we're born in Adam. This is God's vineyard. God is going to tear this vineyard up and with three implements, human predators, lions, horses, natural forces, the mountains will shake and bodies will fall in the street and nations that he will call with a whistle from afar. Arrows sharpened and bows bent, after which the lights go out. Isaiah 530, behold darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. God, my friends, is really, really, really into theism. He's really, really into himself being the center of the universe because he is and himself being the center of our universe because that's what he made us to do, to bring him worship, to love him, to serve him. There's no one more glorious. There's nothing more glorious, nothing more wonderful, more lasting, more tender, more satisfying than him. And they delivered him a a rancid harvest. Isaiah sees Jerusalem on her deathbed. The whole head is sick. She's like a a booth and a vineyard, a lodge and a cucumber field and the lights are going out. Rancid grapes. But really it's less like a deathbed and more like an electric chair. Chapter one started by calling on heaven and earth to witness as though in a courtroom. But Jerusalem doesn't even know it and that's actually part of the problem. The smell is too familiar. But still believe this or not, Isaiah You'd think like a crazy man has incredible hope for these people. After all, he wrote what we read at the beginning of the sermon. He also wrote this tucked away into the verses that we read at the beginning of chapter 1. I will restore you as at the beginning. After you, after you shall be called the righteous and faithful city. Isaiah 4, 2, In that day a branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. His people will be restored, faithful, righteous, beautiful and glorious. How, how will this come about? Seems impossible, right? Wrong. Meet the God of the Bible and the message of the Bible. It might seem impossible for God to restore and rescue you. Wrong. Meet God, the God of the Bible. The room is full of stories of God recovering and restoring broken down messes. And all of us have our origin in the corrupt wild grape yielding vine of humanity. The prophets always bring both judgment in accordance with the people's failure to meet the covenant obligations. But the prophets also always, always bring hope in keeping with God's faithfulness to keep his promise tied to the covenant. The how is the big question. If the blessings of God and his covenants are brought about by means of obedience of the people, the blessings being sure and promise, but they come about in the course of obedience, how will that come about? Well, Isaiah's is gonna answer this as we go. How does the city in chapter one become the city at the end of the book? And then he speaks about on a loop throughout the book. Well, our first hint is around the corner, chapter six. We've seen a confrontation and now we see an encounter. Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. If chapter one required a warning because it was too dark, then chapter six requires a warning because it's too bright. This is maybe the most deadly, And at the same time, life-giving scene in the Bible. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, two two with which he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My friends, look at God. King Uzziah has died. This king is alive and he will never die. Look at God on his throne. Look at God in his temple. The temple is the hot spot for the presence of God in the universe. This is where he meets his people. How majestic is he? Well, let's look at the train of his robe and see how long that is because that's an indication of how great and glorious and majestic This king is, his robe fills the temple. Now look at what's happening around him. He's surrounded by creatures, burning ones. Fire being the symbol of the holiness of God. Remember the flaming swords which guarded the way way back into Eden. Eden being a place that humans do not belong because we're polluted with sin and we're guilty and God is holy and that's where God is. Banished from his presence. Flaming swords at the doors. There's no entry. This is holy ground. Or the burning bush when God came and met his people and meeting Moses. Holy ground. A burning bush. The fire wouldn't go out. The creatures covering their faces. They can't look at God. The creatures are calling to one another. Of all the things that they could say, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy which is not an aesthetic repetition. If I were to say, you're wearing a red shirt, that's red, red. That'd be really red. You get that in the Hebrew Old Testament. Two of the same word put together, it might be translated very red. This is the place where we see three words come together. Holy, holy, holy perfection times perfection times perfection nothing more need be said and what does it even mean well look at him you can't that's the point he's that great he's that bright he's that glorious he's that powerful he's that majestic he's that he's that god this is god's godness his holiness perfect in power in love and purity like being up against the sun. If you are not like him, you are destroyed by his brilliance. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, Isaiah said. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. The foundations are shaking. The house is filled with smoke. And go figure, this is God's touchdown spot on earth. Now look at Isaiah. He's seen the king with his eyes, he says. This for a sinner is like staring into the sun. It's being up close to the sun and unless you're like him, you cannot be near him. And with this new self-awareness, what is there to say? But woe is me. Woe is me. Or another translation, I am ruined. I am ruined. The retina of his heart is Burned. There are people in this world that we would be afraid of. People, you know, who walk with two legs and they wear clothes like you do and they'll die just like you do. But you shake. If you had to talk to them, you wouldn't know what to say. The boss. The CEO of the company. The boss's boss's boss. Never seen that show, Undercover Boss? That's a good one where like the CEO shows up and hangs out with some, an employee in the store and then the, the employee like throws the company under the bus. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's sad entertainment. Don't watch it. Um, and sometimes the guy's like, hey, have you seen that show Undercover Boss? This guy's acting really weird. There are people that scare us. There are people that because of their beauty and their brilliance intimidate us. I didn't talk to my wife for a full year. I think once I tried to talk to her and I found out she was from Michigan and that was it. I didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to say. Uh, I was sure that she would reject me if I said anything more than I had. Surely her parents raised her to stay away from people like me. I had an afro for part of college, you know. A little loud, a little ridiculous. What I'm saying is there are human beings that intimidate us, that we divert our eyes from. God made the universe. How much more God? We have no idea how great he is. And even in this text right here, I pray by his spirit, he is convincing you that he has not been perceived by you as as great and as glorious and as wonderful As he is, woe is me is all we have to say. I'm a sinner with unclean lips from a people with unclean lips. However, did Isaiah come out alive? And that's really the question, right? Because he writes, he lives to write this. So how did he come out alive? How can a sinner meet with the holy God and live? I hope you're asking that question. There's really no more important question the sin in this city wasn't just the city's sin or Isaiah's sin, it's the sin that's characteristic of the whole human race, every son and daughter of Adam. What should be especially alarming is that this city had every special advantage literally in the universe for knowing, love, knowing and loving God. No, man, no, one, no human has an excuse not to, but no humans have ever had a better reason to love God and this is what we've got. Children I have reared and brought up, God says. Isaiah with his people was guilty but however self-deceived he may have been, he was deceived no longer. Then, then, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. An altar, a coal, some tongs, and a touch. Is this a joke? Is this how we solve the problem between a guilty sinner and a holy God? It's no joke at all. It's the gospel. God takes away guilt, it's the only answer. This is not a magical coal this call touched the altar. See what's happening here? What happens on altars in the Holy of Holies? Animals are slain in substitution for the human who brings them. This represents a sacrifice, death, punishment, wrath poured out. Not in Isaiah, but ultimately we know from the Bible on Jesus Christ. Isaiah can walk out guilty. All that will matter before God is what to do with his holiness and our guilt. And all that will resolve that problem is God's incredible mercy, his incredible mercy. A touch. Come now, God said in chapter one, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And Isaiah tells his story right here in chapter six, is encouragement that after all those hard words, look at what God did for Isaiah and he has sent him out with a word about this because what God has done in him, he will do for his people. Verse eight, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And now, not silenced by the holy God, he's able to speak freely and happily a word of willing obedience. He was a guilty sinner with unclean lips and now having been forgiven, now knowing in his heart the mercy of God, having no idea what this holy God will send him out to do, who will go for me? I'll go. And this is the sign of true conversion that whatever God says goes. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do. Whatever his word instructs me concerning his will is a no-brainer. Now we struggle with sin. But we actually can say happily and willingly, here I am, send to me. Yes, I will obey. Warning and promise are not enough to motivate. The first five chapters are not enough. We need a vision of the holiness of God and we need an experience way deep down in the heart of the mercy of God if we're to obey If you find yourself helpless to obey God, maybe, maybe it's that. You do not have a vision of his holiness. And therefore, you have not experienced in your heart his great mercy. Forgiven of his sin, it's an honor to be sent by God. What will God send Isaiah to do, verse 9. And he said, Go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Interesting. Usually, when we quote Isaiah in this section, it's God's call who will go, and it's the answer. Here I am, send me. But usually it's with great expectation for all that God will do. Well, Isaiah is fully expectant of all that God will do, but it's not exactly what we might have thought. God, through Isaiah's preaching ministry, is going to harden the hearts of his people further. This does not mean that they're not culpable for the hardening. What it means is that God is going to Uh, through his word to harden the heart so that all that is really there is shown for what it is in it's ugliness and it's hatred for him. It can be difficult to speak the word of God to friends and family, can't it? Because you don't want to push them away. You don't want them to reject the word. You don't want them not to receive it. But it's just almost impossible to imagine them hearing the word of God. It's it's hardening effect is actually Part of what it does not that God won't save them but we have to embrace that God's word both brings people to himself and raises the dead and confirms sin that's in the heart exposes sin so that the heart recoils against God and it's shown for what it is our job is to open our mouth our job is to open the word and entrust what happens in the heart of a person to the Lord in this case God has said he will harden the hearts of his people and we never rejoice when the word does not do in someone else's heart what it has done in ours we're not dispassionate speakers look at Isaiah here he's not proud he's not glad for this he says how long O Lord in verse 11 how long this is not great news and the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land in a, is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Great. But there's hope. Remember where the book ends, verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, devastation will be 90% and it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. God will harden the heart. His people will be destroyed down to a stump. It will appear as though there is no hope and there is no life left. But from out of that stump will come life. There is hope. Isaiah needs to stick to his job. There will be survivors. There will be a remnant. The stump is left, the seed for something new. But many will not make it. My friends... Be careful about coming to church haphazardly, uh, unattentively, without an ear to hear from God's word. It's dangerous, you see, because the word preached, when the word is preached faithfully, will either harden you or it'll bring you closer to God. If If you leave a sermon under the conviction of sin and harden your heart, you leave worse than you came. Guard against a hard heart. Part of the reason we have people in front to pray each Sunday is for our answer to prayer. We pray that God would save people in our services, that people would come to faith and have questions. It's also to pray with you concerning sin and to counsel you and to lead you in the scriptures. We should all be going home confessing sin to our spouses and one another. Because if we don't, we're hardening our hearts. Be careful, be careful how you come to church. There is hope for you, but not if you won't say, woe is me. Not if you won't say, I'm a sinner. And you know that there's hope because of what Jesus said. Listen to this with the vine imagery in mind. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Sound familiar? And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is the commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And unless we think that delivering good grapes and good fruit for God is merely a matter of raw obedience, verse 13 in John 15, greater love has no one than this, That someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is giving a nod forward to his death. You see, he's going to die in the place of his disciples who can't bear any fruit. But as they abide in him, the risen Lord Jesus, who died for their sins, they can. You see, on the cross, Jesus actually takes the threshing and the uprooting and the destruction that you and I deserve as a rancid vineyard. He takes the vine threshing for his people. And he, the true vine, unites his people to himself and they bear fruit. He is the key. He is the one to whom the book of Isaiah is pointing. Jesus picked up Isaiah's imagery of the vineyard and says, I'm the true vine. I'll deal with your sin. Chapter one through five, Isaiah saw Jerusalem on her deathbed and yet he had hope. He had hope because he saw the Lord on his throne and he walked out alive and he walked out alive without his guilt. And because he walked out alive, he could also speak happily and willingly for God, God's word. In fact, he was eager to do so. So now, chapters seven through 12, he goes out, he's commissioned, he speaks for God as a prophet. Isaiah sees Jerusalem singing to her king. Isaiah sees Jerusalem singing to her king. We've seen a confrontation, we've seen an encounter. And now let me tell you a story about two kings Two different cities by the same name, one built on man, one built on God. The first king's name is Ahaz. The second king, he has four names. He has four names. You'll catch those later. A little bit of uh, obscure ancient Near East history here, which we'll, uh, biblical history, which we'll have to get more of to put Isaiah together as we go throughout the series you might know that God's people were not only in bad shape morally and spiritually but they were divided politically into a northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim and a southern kingdom Judah plenty of disorder in God's house there was this was 200 years old by the time Isaiah is on the scene lots of family and trust issues you see Ahaz is king of Judah in the south For everyone, there is trouble in the east. For all these small nations, including Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they can hear the grinding war machinery and the hunger of the belly of Assyria in the east, growing and mounting itself for attack. Egypt being a true prize. And every small nation along the way that they must go through a prize as well. Judah and Israel are not safe with the sound of Assyria in the east. Israel in the north decides to do a humanly wise thing and hook up with Syria, another small nation, with the hopes of fortifying themselves to provide a resistance against Assyria. Maybe they can help themselves. Probably not. It's almost a sure loss. And when King Ahaz in the south, in Judah, in Jerusalem, finds out that Israel in the north and Syria have joined up, he knows what that means. They will come after him in Judah and invade and conquer in order to fortify themselves further against Assyria, in which case he'll be deposed. Or he's got another option would be to join up with Israel and Syria. The problem with that is now you're sort of asserting yourself as in opposition to Assyria. You don't want to do that. You don't want to die by Assyria and you don't want to die by Assyria's hands as one who needs to have an example made out of him they're the best at torture they're the best at killing but the lord sent isaiah to ahaz with a third option and that was to hear the word of the lord and to trust he said the plan in the north would not fail and they would be safe isaiah 479 do not fear it shall not stand if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all if you're unsure you'll be unsecure in other words God is bigger than Assyria, right? Will he he trust him? Would Ahaz trust the Lord to deal with his enemies? Verse 10 of chapter 7 again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I will give you a sign. I'm telling you, you'll be all right. Um, Whatever you want, I'll prove it. How does he respond? I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. In other words, oh, Lord, 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 no, 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 I wouldn't make you do that, I'm too spiritual. Yikes. God was just too much of a risk for Ahaz. His check, God's blank check, just made Ahaz a little nervous. So in the end, as we learn from kings, Ahaz hooked up with Assyria. He called Assyria and joined him. And that ended really, really bad. Really, really bad. God or Assyria. He picked Assyria. So God responded, 7:13, and he said, "Hear then, O Israel, of, of David. Hear then, O house of David, Ahaz sits on David's throne. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also, my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." God with us is what Emmanuel means. And that's not great news for Ahaz in the immediate because God with him will mean God with him in judgment. But the promise of a sign is bigger than it sounds. You see, Ahaz sits on David's special throne, a throne that God promised a son of David would sit on. It would be an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom. And so after the darkness of God's judgment, and as we now know long after Ahaz is gone, we read this in chapter 9. Turn with me to chapter 9. 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. There is hope. Verse 5 For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, the warring will be over. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. One, two, Mighty God. Three, Everlasting Father. Four, Prince of Peace. What's the result of the increase of his government and of peace? There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A son is coming, God with us, who will make it all right. Ahaz won't see it. A few other verses from the rest of the section. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of Lord shall rest on him. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will do what God says he will do. He will do it through a son of David who will trust him just as it should be. And I hope that you know who we're talking about. Handel's Messiah picks up some of these lyrics. Handel knew his Bible. He picked good verses. These speak about Christ. And and in the New Testament, Jesus himself will say that he himself is the fulfillment of this. He's the son of David, the child who comes, who grows and brings this rule. The God of unapproachable holiness is the God who comes to his people in salvation. What he did for Isaiah in the throne room, he will do for his people. And what he promised here to do for his people, he has done and is doing in us. It is started and it will be completed in the new creation, the new Jerusalem that we read about at the end of Isaiah. The forgiveness of sins is here. Peace is here. Jesus' kingdom is here. And so at the end of chapter 12, turn there with me. Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 12. Remember how the Lord is called the Holy One of Israel in chapter one? They've sinned against him. Holy, holy, holy in the throne room in chapter six. Woe is me is all Isaiah could say. Now here's what God's people say to this God. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And it's for singing about. We're not ruined in the presence of God because of Jesus, but restored. Like a coal touches the lips of Isaiah, Jesus' death when received by faith takes our guilt away and puts a song in our mouth. Awesome. The city of Jerusalem was faithful, faithless, and now she sings. So how does the Jerusalem of this age become the Jerusalem of the next, considering the holiness of God? And how can we find ourselves in it? Plenty of hints here so far. The book of Isaiah, maybe better than any of our Old Testament books, will answer that for us. We have four more weeks to look forward to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for this word. You are our holy God. Holy, holy, holy But we do not say that as those wrecked if we are in Christ, but as those redeemed. Darken our understanding of sin. We cannot see it. We cannot smell it for what it is because we are sinners. Brighten our vision of heaven and of salvation and of Christ because we need that vision. Give us an experience of your mercy and a vision of your holiness. We you need it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.